Hey folks, we've got Josh Bertrand on the show this week. Um, there is honestly kind of a lot of Josh Bertrand content out in the wild right now, which is not entirely a bad thing, um, but if you're a hater, I'm sorry to add to it. That said, I've been listening to his podcast a bunch, and I've just kind of been wanting to talk to the guy, because it felt like he would have some interesting perspectives, I like talking West Coast, and uh, it seemed like it'd be fun. So, we had a good time. I interviewed him on Tuesday, actually one of his off days before the knockout round of the Bass Pro Tour event at Malax. So, we went pretty in-depth on how he caught them at Malax, at least in the beginning. Um, you know, when you're listening to this, uh, who knows what will be happening, um, <laughs> you know, in the tournament or what happened after the tournament. He may have just won it. Um, but anyway, we went pretty deep on that. We talked smallmouth. Um, we talked a little fantasy. We kind of got into how he became a pro angler. Um, he first did it on the Elite Series, qualified via the Opens. He was doing it from the West Coast then. So I thought that was kind of interesting. We talked a little Toyota Series. Um, it's a pretty good show. And uh, I would say... Thanks for listening, and next week we'll have someone else cool on. Alrighty, we're joined now by uh, Bass Pro Tour Pro Josh Bertrand, who is kind of in the middle of doing really well in the BPT event up at Mille Lacs. Uh, Josh, I think, guess thanks for taking the time mid-tournament, and uh, congrats on your success so far. Yeah, hey, thanks so much, man. I'm, I'm stoked to uh, have an opportunity to come on. That's one of the cool things about these off days is uh you get to do stuff like this i've been pretty busy uh both of my off days this week but uh it's a it's a good thing you know it gives me a chance to do this yeah like the, your first one i think you did like some kind of photo shoot and then today you were doing more photos and now a podcast and then you got like a uh you've got a polygraph later on right yeah the the beloved polygraph it uh you know, it's it's one of those things. It's great that we have them in our tournaments, um, but they're just no fun. Even even though you have nothing to worry about, it's still just they take so long. And uh, yeah, you're just sitting in a room for two hours. You know, it's it's uh, going to be my least favorite part of today for sure. Okay, well, hopefully, you know, we can like talk fishing and have a good time for you know thirty forty minutes or so. And I don't, I'm not saying it'll be like the highlight of the day, but that was probably like, you know, a cup of coffee or something like that or sleeping in a little, but you know, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> it'll be um, better than a polygraph, I promise. Yeah. One of my favorite interviews that I've done was with Spencer Shuffield back when he was doing really well at Rayburn, like midstream in one of these Bass Pro Tour events. I guess that would have been last year because that was when the, you know, the top guys were getting the call up from the pro circuit to, Yep. individual bpt events and it was kind of cool to hear him break it down and i didn't watch any of the live on day one but i watched it a fair amount the other day and i got to see you fish some but like what was the difference in the days because you didn't i don't want to say you didn't do good yesterday because you might have found a lot of stuff and learned a lot of stuff but like you were firing on all cylinders on day one yeah it's it's what's crazy is if you look at 
if you look at the weather forecast and stuff, there wasn't a very big difference, but there was a big difference in water quality. And I'll go a little more into that, which it was kind of interesting. But like, yeah, that first day, everything went perfectly. I mean, my early morning stuff was, you know, it was hot. I caught them cranking and throwing a Carolina rig and, and just move and cover in water. You know, I, I found a couple wads of fish and got off to a great start. And then um, I had a quick little dry spell trying to kind of get on my feet for the later later bite. And then I got on some, some deeper boulders and stuff, and this area was really good. And I ended up catching them really good for like the last three hours of the day. The first day, drop shotting a uh, Berkeley hitworm. And, you know, the, the forecast looked the same going into the next day. Uh, we had the day off, so you're actually looking two days ahead there and uh, I really expected to whack him again. And early on, you know, there was not the, the wads of fish I had found in the morning weren't necessarily loaded up in the same spot. There were still a few fish there, but the fish were so much more tentatively hitting that crankbait. I lost like my first three fish on a crankbait, caught (laughs) one, lost another. And I'm thinking, man, I got to put this thing down because they are just slapping at it today and then not eating it. Um, and it just kind of, it kind of snowballed from there. I, you know, I was still in pretty good shape after the first period, but I had to, you know, get it going. Um, I went over to that boulder area that had been so good the day before or two days before, and I caught one on my first drop and I was like, all right, here we go. And then just literally two hours of nothing. And, uh, a big thing to me, I think was, uh, an algae bloom really started to blow up in that area. And uh, it, I first thought it was just that area. So I I was patient with it, hoping that maybe a breeze would blow it out of there or the fish. I, you'd still see the fish um, on live scope and stuff. So you knew they were there. They just weren't biting. Mm-hmm. After a few hours, I ended up having to bail. And I actually ran almost the whole lake trying to get out of the algae. And it was, it was lake wide. So... Really? Um, That's wild. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. And uh, it obviously didn't slow some guys down, but I really do in my heart think it slowed down that real deep bite. Like, And I'm not talking 40 feet, but 20 to 22, it really seemed to slow down because I ran a lot of good boulders all over the lake. And some guys might have crushed them on the boulders, but it wasn't me. And uh, and at the end of the day, I had poked back up shallow. You know, in the last 10 minutes, I caught like a four and a half and a three. So, uh, you know, cranking really, at the end of the day, you know, uh, I, those actually came just pitching a drop shot at fish. I saw cruising on live scope, but they were okay. in like, you know, water. So like six feet. So I'm going to probably tomorrow we got wind. I'm really going to run that crankbait a lot harder and stick with it a lot longer. And, uh, you know, the other potential thing is that wind could blow some of the algae, out of the areas where those boulders were at. So I'm, I'm really not going to – I've got a lot of good areas to run. I just need to, um, you know, maybe let the conditions speak to me a little bit more and, uh, and, and fish, you know, fish that way a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, so your boulders, I, I know I was listening to your podcast, and I guess you went and pre-practiced, and I think you'd been there before. So, like – yeah, you came in with a pretty good amount of knowledge, and the nice thing about rock up north is that it doesn't move. So, like, 
are your your deep stuff are you running a lot of real isolated stuff or is it like you've got a few areas where you go and you just drop the trolling motor yeah i mean you make a great point about the rock stuff and it's pretty you know how, how that doesn't change and it's pretty funny because there you know on on all my waypoints i only fished one tournament here and i did come pre-practice so i did some idling but really especially the stuff from that previous tournament um you might have a big giant flat or reef or something and there's you know 30 little areas where the rocks kind of good and clustery and you got some small boulders and then you have like one or two key boulders that was and, and, and last tournament you know what six years ago five years ago i had those those key boulders marked with a red dot you know i've got on Garmin, you can use all kinds of different icons, right? So I would mark the boulders with a boulder icon, but anywhere where I had caught good fish, they had a red dot. And uh, even like on the first day of the tournament, because I didn't get to practice a lot of these boulders. You have such a short practice, it's, you can't fish everything. So a lot mm-hmm. of the stuff, I was just fish blind. And uh, I would fish all the boulder icons that didn't have red dots and not catch anything. And I would get to my red dot from five years ago, and the, the rock would be full of fish. <laughs> it's pretty wow. funny how. I mean, dude, it happened like 12 times, like 12 different places. Like you'd fish everything that you thought might have looked good, but when you get to the one that was good five years ago, it was it was the one again. So um, pretty interesting. On live scope, were were your fish like setting up on the boulders different between day one and day two? Like, were they higher or just not as tight, or were they exactly the same and they just were not eating? That's a good question, and and I think it it kind of was was a mix. You know, it, it, there's no doubt that you know when you see a good one, you see the the fish kind of all around it. Sometimes there'll be a couple up above it. Sometimes they'll just be off to the side, and I, I, I'm not really sure that they were set up that different but they sure reacted differently to the bait like i mean you would pitch the first day and you would see all of them zero in and swim down to your bait whereas in this case they might not react at all they might do it and there were actually some where they would swim away and uh, obviously that's such a bad sign on live scope i know you've done a lot of live scoping and uh you know the way you the fish, <laughs> yeah you can tell if a fish is going to bite a lot of times just by the speed that he swims up to your bait. Like if a fish slowly swims up to your bait, you might be able to get trick him into biting. If he swims up to your bait real fast, hold on. By the time you've even processed that in your brain, it's probably on the, on the hook. Uh, but when they swim the other way, it's like you're having a rough day. Yeah. I was listening to BTL the other day and Austin Felix said that he thought 99% of the smallmouth that were like over three pounds have been caught before in Malax. Like, do you think it's pressure and that was it? Or, or do you really think a lot of it is just the mood and the, uh, the algae? I think the pressure is definitely a factor. I mean, it, and they do get pressure all the time, but, um, I think it's a factor for sure. And those, those boulders, like, let's just say for instance, that I was out there and there was another tournament boat, you know, that I was sharing all these, these rocks with the first day and say, for instance, two more dudes did it the next day and you've got five fish on each boulder. Yep. There's a pretty legit chance that most of them have, have been caught this week. So I think the pressure is, uh, I, 
I always want to blame pressure. You know, that's the easiest thing to blame later in the week in the tournament week is fishing pressure. And it's for a good reason, right? I mean, it's it's a big deal, but, uh, I think it was a combination for sure. And, uh, we'll see. I mean, but the condition still, one thing I'm learning about fishing Bass Pro Tour is like the weeks are so long and so much changes through the week. But, uh, sometimes I, I, I give, I put too much into the pressure and uh, I try to get, get away from the areas that I know have fish and, you know, those areas keep it, keep putting the fish out. It, it varies from tournament to tournament, but Cayuga was a great example. And I know there's a lot of fish there, but for as small as that lake fished and is, I mean, there, there were little, you know, grass lines and grass clumps that had a boat on them all day. And, uh, it fished as good the last day as it did the first day. It was crazy. Hmm, that's interesting. Also, you said earlier you were using a hitworm, and when I read it on the website, I read flatworm, I think. So, if you were using a hitworm, why did you go with a hitworm? Like, I feel like just yeah. throwing a flatworm is the natural, easy, northern smallmouth choice at this point. You, yeah, you usually can't beat a flatworm, and I know I'm sure there's a lot of guys catching them really good on that flatworm. Um but for me anyways, and I think it, a lot of people know it's pretty common knowledge that a wacky rig drop shot works really well here. I mean, Seth Fighter kind of made it really popular um, to all of us, you know, got traveling guys. And, uh, you know, uh, that if you're going to, if you're going to, and the reason is a lot of times these fishers are so educated, they're not going to bite that worm necessarily on the fall, especially around those boulders. you got to trick them into biting. And you sit there and shake it, shake it, shake it, tease them and play that cat and mouse game. And um, that if you're going to rig it like that and shake it in their face, that hit worm is just really cool because it, it's it got a, that kind of a bulb on its tail. And it just really has a, a cool little bounce to it when you shake it like that wacky rig. Whereas the, the flat worm would work, but it just doesn't to me doesn't look as cool on the on the wacky rig okay that's uh makes perfect sense um and i feel like there's probably a lot of folks who myself included who would just read that and not immediately think wacky rig but i mean you're a drop shot guy like sometimes wacky rig is the way to go on it and here's the other cool thing too is like this they are pressured um when you have your your deal wacky rig and they just nip at your bait it's pretty hard for them not to get a hook when the hook is dead in the middle of your bait. Whereas if you're just nose hooking a worm, they can easily just steal the bait off your hook just by grabbing the tail. But there's not really a tail to grab here. Yeah. It's all one package. Yeah, for sure. Okay. That makes sense. Do you do anything different on your, like on your drop shot? Like are you using a different hook or heavier weight? Like, or is it literally the same thing, just different bait? That's a great question. I think you do, if you ever want a wacky rig on a drop shot, especially the hit worms, one thing, but especially if you ever go to a stick worm, a Senko or a general or something like that, um, you want to use a little bit bigger hook because there's more plastic to clear out of the way, you know, and that's like generally I'm, I'm not a, the biggest fan of wacky rigging in general because I tend to lose more fish like with a wacky rig, just the way that stick worm will ball up and you, you do it cause it works really well, but you've got to use a little different hook, a little bit bigger hook. And it's no different here. Um, 
you upsize your hook just a little bit and you go to a little bit heavier weight because the rate of fall is slowed down so much by the resistance of that wacky rig drop shot compared to a nose hook drop shot. Instead of shooting straight down, it, it you know, it, it slides all the way down and there's a lot more resistance. So I'm using a half ounce drop shot weight. Okay. In how deep of water? Like? In like 15 to 22. So not okay. super deep. And not crazy without, deep. Yeah, yeah. Um, are you generally a guy who you like to try to go as light as you can on the weight? I know like Cody Meyer always would be like, yeah, I'm throwing like an eighth ounce drop shot weight. And I'd be like, Cody, it just gets to the bottom. It doesn't matter, but he's Cody Meyer. I'm not going to doubt him. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. And and I think that might be a Western thing because I'm similar. You know, I don't go to an eighth, but I throw three sixteenths a lot. Now, the smallmouth are a little different. I, I really feel like the smallmouth are a little more forgiving. Um, but a lot of times I throw 316 with, with largemouth because, you know, I mean, this, I, I just feel like it looks more natural and gives them a little longer to see it on, the, on that initial fall. You know, they see it on that initial fall, they follow it to the bottom, and then they bite it. And if it's rocketing to the bottom, sometimes those fish that aren't really aggressive just might not give it the same chance. Um, but smallmouths are different. These it's different everywhere you go. But I've had you know fishing out west. I've had you know co anglers going really really light with a drop shot in really deep water. You know, kick my butt, and uh, and you're sitting there trying to process it. Like it doesn't make sense. You know, we're in thirty forty feet, and these fish are on the bottom. Why would yeah. they want a lighter weight? But I really feel like that natural fall coming down is a huge part of it. Yeah. One thing I've learned with live scope is just how much fish can come up for a bait. Like, I've literally seen them come up, like, 15 to 20 feet off the bottom in the St. Lawrence River. And, like, in, like, 45 feet of water to eat a bait. And, like, I wonder if that's the slow fall thing. Like, maybe sometimes it just gives them, like, a longer time to either either see it and come to it or like maybe come to it and then like track it back down. Like, I don't know. It's good point. Yeah. They can actually stay on it as they're following it down, you know, and that minute the weight hits the bottom and then that worm, the worm is continuing to sink, but it fall, it falls, you know, for that last foot or two much slower. That's the moment where I think so many of those fish grab it before you even go to pull tight, because how often do you, you get it's all the time. You cast your drop shot out, hits the bottom, you pull up to pull tight and the fish is already on. Yeah, you tighten up and it's just weight and you're like, here we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> oh, that is, uh, dude, I love that feeling. I There is something about that. It's a, because you don't always see the fish bite on, on your live scope or whatever. Like that moment of mystery and then when you feel fish weight and not drop shot weight. Oh, God, I love that. <laughs> yep, yep, it's the best, man. I agree. Um, For your cranking deal. I know you cranked at uh, Cayuga a bunch. What did you, and, and you're cranking here, are you cranking on the bottom? Or are you mid-water column? Because I have really struggled to make cranking for smallmouth work for me outside of the pre-spawn, but I really want it to work for me. It's, yeah, well, because it's so much, again, it's so much fun. Like, it's crazy how much fun it is to have a four-pound smallmouth just crush a crankbait. I mean, like, Largemouth cranking is fun, but it's largemouth don't pull drag on the initial bite <laughs> when they hit the crankbait. 
know. I mean, out here this week, there's been so many where they seems like they hit it going 30 miles an hour the other direction. And by the time you even realize there's a fish on, it's stripping drag and the fish are doing cartwheels, you know? So it's, it's really fun. But, um, yeah, I think in largemouth fishing, 99% of the time you need to be hitting the bottom, right? Uh, getting that deflection, making those fish eat and, and, and smallmouth fishing, that's not definitely not always true, especially a lake like this. that has got so many muscles, like the zebra muscles are crazy, uh, on this place. So, as soon as your bait starts hitting the bottom, you start getting nervous. Like, oh man, I got it. You so you know you want to have on the on your boat deck a couple different crankbaits for whatever depth you're fishing, and you really are trying to keep it up off the bottom. And then again, the natural tendency of of smallmouth to get up and cruise and sit a little higher in the water column. Um, you just don't want to be fishing below the fish ever. So um, definitely, you know, if you're fishing right now and in eight to 10 feet, you want a crankbait that's running, you know, seven, eight feet, maybe, uh, even six you'd get away with, you know, but you definitely don't want to be grinding the bottom. There's still deflection, you know, maybe bouncing off of boulders, a good thing, or, you know, ripping, there's a lot of grass line fishing and stuff out here. So maybe when you clean it off that grass with a rip, you get bit, but usually, uh, you're trying to in largemouth fishing, you're trying to get a bait if you're fishing at 10, you want a bait that runs like 12, right? Yeah, so you, yeah, you want to hit the bottom. But you're going backwards here. You're, if you're fishing at 10, you want a bait that runs 8. Hmm. Are you cranking pretty fast, or is it like just sort of a steady medium retrieve? I've been cranking pretty fast, and uh, sometimes I I wonder if at times I get going a little too fast, but it definitely seems like... Um, they're, they can they can chase it down right now pretty good at a high speed. You can cover a lot of water, and um, when those fish get really pressured, sometimes speeding up helps. It gets gets them to react a little bit more than fishing slow. But you know we'll see as the week goes on. But I've definitely been fishing real real fast for sure with the crankbait. Hmm. Um, like a six to one reel or a five or still a five to one reel, but just cranking real fast. Or like what's your what's your setup situation? Yeah. So like I've got I've got them on like a seven six medium heavy winch rod from Abu Garcia. It's a composite rod. So the medium heavy medium heavy that sounds like a lot, but it's it's a composite. Um, you know, very. Oh, I don't want to say parabolic, but more so than a typical medium heavy. And then the seven six really helps you launch that bait, which is important. And then uh, yeah, six point four to one reel. So kind of in, uh, in between, but slightly slower reel. And uh, just makes it really smooth to be able to crank pretty fast, but not have to fight a high gear ratio reel on that. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, are you are you a targeting individual fish with your crankbait? Like, are you seeing a lot of fish on live scope, or are you casting your like? Are you making blind casts more, covering areas more? Definitely a combination. I mean, you're covering water and just casting and you're getting a lot of your bites way at the end of your cast you know where you don't even see on live scope but you have to be paying attention to that thing all day if you've got it when you're smallmouth fishing because it will put extra fish in the boat you know you'll see a fish that maybe you're casting up on top of the flat but out in front you do see a, a, a lone ranger out there and, and a lot of times you can catch that fish either with the crank or having your drop shot handy and pitching to it yeah, that makes I me. Mean, you got a live scope is like such a cheat code for smallmouth. It's amazing. It is, and and here's the other thing with cranking, and, and uh, we talk about 
talked about this in our house that we stay at this week is like it's so nice because you can see how deep your crankbait runs so you look say you're fishing a little shelf i mean you can shine that live scope up to the shelf and say okay well i'm in 10 feet here but actually on top of the shelf it's seven and the grass is growing a foot up off the bottom so i need to pick this other crankbait up for this spot and you cast it out and you see what that crankbait's doing you, you can see it running it either the right depth or the wrong depth and make that adjustment so even as as or more important than seeing fish you're you're seeing the depth the structure and then how deep your crankbait runs and i've learned a lot since I had live scope about how deep crankbaits actually run, you know, in the past it was like, well, I think this one runs about this deep, you know, and I hit the bottom on, <laughs> you know, so it's running this deep. But in this case, you're so precise. And, and when you are talking about small mouths that, you know, you want to be in that, that right one or two, one or two feet in depth diving. It's uh, it's really cool because you can style it in perfect. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. The other day I was at a lake and I was trying to crank a, a boulder, and my first cast I went over it and I was and I was like two feet over the boulder. And my next cast I cast a little bit farther, and I did like the little new and reel for like the first ten fifteen feet of the cast, and I watched the crankbait come right up and hit off of it. And of course, the fish didn't care either way, <laughs> but it was just really nice to be like, hey, you can dial it in just like that. It was beautiful. That's perfect great example seriously man and, and, and you're totally you bring up a great point about the, the just the casting distance and and you do that a lot like you know instead of making a bomb cast and totally over digging you know out here in a lot of cases i do i'll, I'll look up there and see okay this rock pile is pretty shallow right there i need to make a shorter cast that way it's just not grinding into the muscles by the time it gets to the rock pile yeah i've noticed since i got live scope i fish a lot closer to the boat you know, like, Same. and it's, it might, just because 40 feet is actually really close. <laughs> and uh, I wonder sometimes if, like, I would be more, I don't want to say I would be more successful, but I wonder if I should get back to, like, making long casts and, like, just fishing a little bit more sometimes. But then you catch one 25 feet away that you saw on the scope and, you know, you keep doing that. Yeah, you're, I totally agree, you know, and, and it, I guess uh, it probably depends on the situation, but I find myself getting impatient and, like, instead of pulling up and making a, a few long casts to whatever structure I'm going to fish, I like, can't wait to get within, like, 60, 70 feet of this so I can see on live scope what I'm casting at. <laughs> and, like, I find I get up on top of stuff a lot quicker. And, and But, hey, maybe it, maybe it's i'm a lot more efficient now you know what yeah. i mean who knows it you might i'm sure it's costing you some fish but is it also saving you a lot of time and ultimately putting more fish in the boat yeah, knowing no, what's going no doubt you have the new transducer right the 34 yep i do have have you noticed any changes either in your settings that you run or just stuff it's allowed you to do um because I, like, I got it a couple weeks ago, and it's, like, it's a lot better. Like, I think if someone's like, hey, is it worth it? My answer would be, yeah, definitely. But um, have, has it changed anything for you at all? Yeah, I mean, I did a video on it, and if anyone wants to see the video, I, I kind of 
it's on my YouTube channel and it, it breaks down like sort of three or four things that I think are the most important. And I got, you know, you can see on the video, some of the, the pictures of it and stuff, but I think that, um, I agree. It's worth this. It's worth it. If you can swap them out, it's, it's better. I mean, you could see if you could, if someone could just tell you right now, you could see 20 feet further and a lot clearer, like, that's worth it. I mean, that's, that equates to a lot of extra fish in the boat. Yeah. Especially for bass. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the other one, if you were really, really savvy, you could get that thing pretty dialed. Like, and and you could, you could get close to the performance of this, but you were always having to tweak and adjust the settings. And, you know, in this case, this one is much more forgiving. There's a lot of times when I just don't touch it all day. You know, you just kind of set it and forget it. You can, you can run that gain much higher without the interference. Have you noticed that? Yeah, I used to run it mine at like 60 all the time, and now I'm running it at like 73 all the time. I yeah, like. and same. And, and, you know, I would actually, towards the end of having the old transducer, I would actually try to run that gain up to 70 and just look through this blown-out screen to be able to see a couple extra fish maybe. But now, I mean, yeah, you can crank that gain way up and, and it's clear still. It's really, it's really great, especially for seeing your bait, you know, far out. It's a, uh, it's pretty awesome. And then they talk a lot about the target separation fish that are sitting right on the bottom. Um, this picks them up a lot better. Um, the other one, you know, you'd kind of get used to it and yeah, but, but the fish, a fish might look like a rock on the bottom and now you can really tell those fish from the bottom a lot better in my opinion. Yeah, I fish a lot in like, you know, December and November up north, and I'm really, and that's a lot of smallmouth that are kind of glued to the bottom. I'm really looking forward to trying this transducer that this winter. Same with same with where I fish at home in the winter time. The, the fish just you catch fish and they have mud on their belly sometimes, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat, man. I didn't get to fish this past winter with it, so. It would be pretty cool to see. Now that we've kind of, we've talked smallmouth pretty heavy. We've talked malax pretty heavy. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about you and sort of your journey to being a pro angler and then also sort of what our current situation is and, you know, what it looks like for a guy who's trying to be a pro from out west. Um, you actually, I guess you grew up in New Hampshire or like when did you move to the west coast? Because I know... You're a Western guy now. You make fun of people complaining about drives. That means you're a Western guy. But you didn't start there, right? Actually, you know, all, almost all my bass fishing experience is out west. So I was born in New Hampshire. All my family is from New Hampshire, um, even a lot from Canada. But uh, we moved out to Arizona when I was eight years old. So, okay, so I, you know, that's I it. Like Arizona. Yeah. I mean, I, I love the culture in New England and stuff like that. I mean, I. I where you live in Vermont, it's not far. I mean, I actually, uh, you know, was a lot of my family's in like northern New Hampshire, and I, uh, I would go visit and spend my entire summer fishing every summer as a kid. So I've actually got a lot of, I, I cut some of my bass fishing teeth fishing the smaller lakes and stuff like that in, in the region up there. But really, um, I've been out west for most of my life and uh, been fishing bass out west since i was like 12 okay and then you i know let's see like you fished the tbf national championship i think and like you fished a lot of 
I guess I assume you fished a lot of Western stuff, and I just can't really pull up the stats for it very well. well but you know, it's kind of interesting because I fished um, the TBF for a couple of years, which I think is like anyone that's always asking me, "What do I do to get into tournament fishing?" That's like what I tell people. Especially, I think it's amazing place to learn and grow as a fisherman um and it's fun but uh i did that for a couple of years i did a lot of team tournaments i you know i was so eaten up with it i fished a team tournament every weekend and the team tournaments are really fun but they uh it's you know you just don't, doesn't take you to anywhere as a fisherman and eventually i realized it like they're they're fun and you're it makes they make you a better fisherman but you know you could win every team tournament you ever fish and uh all you get is a you know pat on the back, and um, you go the next state over, and no one knows who you are. You know, uh, it doesn't. You know, the, it, you're not reaching a lot of people uh, for potential sponsors. They're they're great, but um, you do have to I think travel a little bit to uh, take your fishing to the next level. So um, I fished. A few, uh, just cherry pick some Toyota, uh, what are now the Toyotas when they would come to Arizona, but to travel to like Northern California from where I live in Arizona is about the same as going to Texas. So I kind of took the route of going to fish some opens back in Texas and, uh, did that for two years. And, um, you know, for me, the second year weather, um, you know, it was uh, too soon for me or not. I ended up winning Angler of the Year in the Central Opens and went on the Elite. So I was like 23. So I didn't really like have a whole lot of time to, to get up to Northern California and do a ton of fishing, fish a ton of the to- Toyotas up there. I kind of went back east instead and uh, just kind of dove all in and started my fishing education back east rather than out west. But, um, you know, and it, it it worked out for me, but it's kind of a unique path. Yeah, like, so your first year, if I'm looking at your stats right, in 2010, you fished three opens, and you didn't make a check in any of them. And then, <laughs> yeah, <that> was cool. <laughs> And then in 2012, you finished second in the first one, and then 19th and 17th, and you made, like, I guess it'd be probably close to twenty-three or $2,400 for the year, or sorry, 2000 or $20,000 for the year or 20, something like that for the year. And then in 2013, your second elite series tournament, you finished fourth. (laughs) It's hilarious how like, you know, that when you first start doing some of that stuff, if you've got a little bit of ability, your confidence can sometimes carry you along, you know, and at 23, 24, yeah, I thought, I thought I knew quite a bit about bass fishing, right? And uh, it, the longer you do it, the more you realize that there's a lot more to learn. Like, I mean, yeah, my first couple of years tra- traveling back there, um, things were like a lot easier because I didn't realize what I didn't know, right? And then I think that's such a, like the sophomore slump that everyone talks about. I think it's really real. Um, I think you come back down to earth a little bit your sophomore year, and then you continue to learn from there. But that's kind of how how it was for me, anyways. The that that year fishing the opens, and then my first year on the elites, uh, they were uh, a bit more of a breeze than they probably should have been. And then 2014, I came back down to earth and realized, okay, you got to keep putting a lot more work in. You got to learn a lot more. Hmm. I feel like you. I mean, obviously, you had success pretty quickly, right? You fished 
six, uh, you know, you fish like six major tournaments and you were on the Elite Series, you know, minus your couple of tournaments out West. Did you feel, what do you feel like is the right formula? Like if you had had to fish nine opens or if you had needed to jump from the, you know, the Toyota series to another level than to the Bass Pro Tour, like, do you think you'd be doing it? Or do you think, like, were you just going to do it regardless? Or do you think that quick start, like, helped, like, helped you? What's, where, where do you land on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's different for everybody, right? I mean, now the, the you know, the college fishing, there's a whole nother angle into, you know, pathways to, to be a full-time angler, you know, it, it um, and it's different for everyone. It's different for where you live. You know, speaking for like a Western angler, you really, you have to really pick your shots because it's so far to travel back east and fish those tournaments, right? So like, you, and to do, I mean, honestly, if I had to do nine opens, like I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't have done it because I wouldn't have had the money or time to fish nine. Like it was a big thing for me to fish three. Like it was yeah. all the money I had and it was all the time I had. So there's no question if I had to do nine, I would not have done it and been able to, um, you know, for out, for a fisherman out West, you, you, you kind of have to make that. And you're seeing guys, some guys, um, do what I did. And then some guys really make it work through the Toyotas. You know, I mean, if you look at Justin Lucas, Cody Meyer, Brent Ayler, a lot of the, uh, super studs that came from the West, like it started, fishing the toyota series out west and, yeah or that uh, old national guard western division that we had exactly stuff, yeah. yeah i mean and it's it's there's some a lot of really cool western tournaments that i like that i love fishing you know there's one bass um there's a wild west tournament series called wild west and i love to jump into them but like they don't offer a long-term platform uh to um you know to, to fish nationally and uh, the mm-hmm. to- the toyotas do so i'm a huge fan of of that and i'm really glad that toyota is out west but um i think you know it, it's different for everyone and, and when kids ask it's really hard to because uh, it, it's really hard to to suggest oh you should fish these tournaments or you should do that because it's so different for everybody i always just tell them to fish as much as they can with as many people as they can and really to me, the biggest thing is fish draw tournaments, not team tournaments. I still go home and fish team tournaments for fun. But if you're trying to be a professional angler, team tournaments just don't get you there. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. And I, I always have thought it'd be cool if we could run like some more big-time team tournaments. But just because I think team tournaments are a lot of fun. But I agree, yeah. like, you know, you're not – nobody's – I guess maybe outside of like Todd Castledine, you're not necessarily making a living fishing team tournaments. And so you've got to, at some point, make those decisions on your own, you know, and learn on your own. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You end up fishing more variety of lakes, right? Like, I mean, it, and, uh, it depends on where you live, obviously, like, you know, where he lives, where Todd lives in East Texas, there's a lot more, to offer as far as big payouts and team tournaments and stuff but um yeah i just uh 
the, the, the fact that you are out on your own making those decisions on your own, you've got different dudes in your boat. That you, if you fish team tournaments with your team partner, it's great. It's awesome. Um, but, like, it's the same guy you fish with all the time. So you don't learn as much new stuff as you do when you fish draw tournaments and fish with someone different every time. Even if the angler's new, he might have he might have the craziest bait tied on that you've ever seen. And, and you're, you're chuckling about it in your head. And then he goes and catches a bunch of fish on it. <laughs> You're like, hey, what was that thing called, dude? You know, so you, you always learn from uh, from fishing with other people. Yeah, no uh, no doubt. Um, if you were, I'm not saying if you were doing it over again, but if you were giving advice, do you think the route is to try to fish in college, then fish BFLs, then fish the Toyota Series, or maybe out west it's college and then right into the Toyota Series? Or do you feel like do you feel like college fishing is a, still a pro, is still a proving ground, or do you think someone would be better off just like fishing flat out as much as they can and making as much money as they can to pay entry fees? Oh man, that's a I probably can't even I can't make a comment on that because I didn't fish in college, so I don't know hundred percent what that experience is all about i mean i think it's a pretty great opportunity to network and fish different places and and fish against good competition i mean i i would think it's probably a better route if you can do it i would think i mean and you look at the product that it's produced as far as fishermen in the last five to ten years like it's it's proven no doubt these guys come out of there and uh a lot of them have success right away. Uh, so I, I think it's a, if you can, it's probably the better route, but all that to be, all that to say, like there's a lot of guys that did it on their own, um, without college fishing that are in great shape too these days, you know, but Brandon Paul and Justin Lucas, um, there's just for every guy that did go young, you know, stud pro that did go through college. There's a guy that did it on his own. Right. Uh, yeah, they're both they're both good options. Do you? What do you think? Uh, I might be like fifty fifty on it. I feel like out west it might be a really good option to fish in college some because that'll get you to come back east for the national championships and you'll yeah see the fishing there. Whereas if you're back east, like I fished in college, it, it was great. Like I learned a ton. Um, and it wasn't like, and it, it felt like lower stakes to fail, I guess. Um, but sure, you know, man, if you uh, if you lived in Alabama or something like that, and you could, you know, cut grass or paint houses, and then also um, learn, you know, build houses, do something like that, and then also, you know, fish a couple divisions of bfls like you'd probably learn a lot like that and that's with you know stuff being a lot more approachable and a close drive and things so i i, I kind of think it's probably it probably depends a lot on the person um that's and a like a point. lot of the situation everyone's about west is in such a, a unique spot everything's just different than it is for the folks that live in the epicenter and um one's not better than the other obviously um uh, but um, and one thing that I didn't talk about that was like a big thing for me through that whole time was I was doing a lot of guiding and, uh, you know, even it, 
the guiding helped me a lot. Like from the time I was 18 until I was really traveling a couple of years into my full-time tournament career, like I, I was doing up to a couple hundred guide trips a year and uh, I was on the water a lot and it really, but as much as is the on the water time, it really helped me um, be less of a, a, a shy, I was kind of a shy kid and being out and having to make conversation on those slow fishing days and, and show people a good time on the water. It really helped uh, my ability to communicate. And it also was a great opportunity for me to meet a lot of different people, you know, and I met a lot of different business owners, some people in the fishing industry, you know, you just meet so many folks. And that's another thing for, you know, a young angler, if you could, uh, even if you don't start your own outfit, even if you do some extra trips to help out a, a local guide or something, I'm not saying it's something that you should do or have to do or even do full time, but just uh, doing it really helped me become a lot more well-rounded on the, uh, you know, getting ready for the business side of it too. And it's that's different than, you know, having your marketing degree and, and, and knowing how to sell sponsorships and, and do stuff like that. But it helped me, you know, kind of bridge the gap on the communication side for sure. Did you go to college like for marketing or something or did you not even no, I, no, you so graduated I, yeah. high school and started guiding or what was your path? Yeah. No, that's, that's exactly what I went to like four months of community college and dropped out because I, I was missing so many guide trips in the spring. So uh, I don't recommend people to do exactly what I did, but I, I will say the guiding really helped me. And it's great as a professional angler, you know, when you've got some time at home and you're sitting around like, you can go make some money. You just, you know, go do some guide trips. And uh, I, I enjoy, I still enjoy it. I've got a lot of guide clients that I've been taking forever that, you know, it's just every off season, I might just, I might only do 20 trips during the off season, but it's, it's fun for me to get out and still do it. Yeah. I feel like Alex Davis is a good example of like how guiding can be really, really great because he is, uh, he's so personable, right? Like most guides, like if they're successful, yeah you're gonna just enjoy spending time with them flat out. Cause if you have a guide who's not any fun, you're probably not going to go back, right? Like that guide's career is probably going to be somewhat short lived and no matter how many fish you're catching. <laughs> and then, yep. you know, you also, and then like, you know, he, it gives you that fallback that's still in fishing. He still probably gets to learn something every day. No doubt. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. He's, you know, you're working, you're, you're getting better with your electronics. You're always still trying to find fish. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it works on all levels for sure. For you. Um, I, I feel like recently, you know, we've seen Andrew Loberg, we've seen, um, Phil Dutra just this year, like come East, have a lot of success. Like they've looked really good. Yep. Did you have any big hurdles that you needed to learn or big things you like felt like you, I don't want to say missed out, but like, what were some of your biggest challenges when you started fishing back East? Cause evidently that first year you had some, even if after that you conquered them all easily. <laughs> no, I definitely, you know, I definitely did. And I, I still do. Right. I mean, it's everyone's going to have strengths and weaknesses and, and you work really hard to become a well-rounded angler. And, and like, I try to do that myself, but you still have things that you're not good at as others. And for me, you know, growing up in Arizona, 
we it's not all clear water and drop shotting like i think maybe some people might think there's still a lot of power fishing and flipping and there's some dirty water and stuff like that but what we we are a long way from any tidal fishery and uh you know the guys like phil and uh, andrew they cut their teeth fishing around the delta you know mm-hmm. so they they that's a huge advantage in lucas and zaldane and uh Cody Meyer, and all those guys, Skeet, they, that Delta is an amazing fishery to teach people on. The Delta is 13 hours from my house. So um, when I first started fishing tournaments back east, I really struggled on tidal water. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I've, I've learned and I've gotten better, but it's still, when I see a tidal tournament on the schedule, I cringe, you know, I'm like, e, <laughs> hopefully I can survive that. You know, hopefully I can just you know have a decent tournament at that one um so it's something that um that is tough and then learning how to grasp this you know it was really important for me early on to just to basically have some guys help me learn how to grasp this you know if you can get in the boat with with a couple guys that are good at it and really break it down it can save so much time and i had some friends um that were able to do that. And, and I mean, literally like my first year fishing back East, I had to have a guy tell me that is hydrilla. That is milfoil. That is eelgrass. That it, cause, I mean, in Arizona, there's a little bit, but there's not much. You got like toolies and, and most lakes don't have grass. So, um, you know, literally, I mean, I had to learn that from the bottom and tidal fishing is the same. Okay. But you also probably had some advantages where, you know, you probably came over, I guess, extremely comfortable with a drop shot, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, fishing offshore and fishing rocky stuff and, and drop shotting, you are definitely, I mean, you you grow up fishing in Arizona with a drop shot rod in your hand. So mm-hmm. uh, some things, like for whatever reason, the smallmouth fishing has always come much more natural to me than a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess, do the smallmouth out west, like they don't really fish the same as the smallmouth back east i feel like it seems like you're or do you think that they do it, it just it kind of depends on the fishery you know our smallmouth fisheries we do have out west like the colorado river is probably and it's, it's unless you go like up to washington the colorado river is like our kind of the crown jewel of smallmouth fishing out west and uh havasu is definitely more of a shallow lake it, you know the deepest part of havasu is like 40 feet and, uh, you know, there's no fish out there. Most of the fish in Havasu, when you're catching smallies, are in 5 to 20. Um, and they like some of the same stuff, but it's definitely different. It's it's definitely different. Um, but, yeah, like some of the drop shotting, the rock and stuff like that, like I kind of learned those principles more on largemouth fishing and just applied them to smallmouth up north. I like it. I like it. Um, all right. I, I have two more topics i want to hit here um i guess the first one is you've got a podcast angler's happy hour uh when did you start it why did you start doing a podcast not it's yeah, it's like thing. an extra thing <laughs> it's a good show i listen to it like yeah. a pretty good pretty good amount <laughs> well thank you man thanks for bringing it up too and uh, I, I need to get you on too i think you'd be an awesome guest um for when you have time, but, um, it's, we started it in 2019 just because I was really into listening to podcasts and, uh, just thought it would be fun to do one. I mean, 
everyone and their brother has started a podcast in the last couple of years, you know? Yes. Uh, it's, 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 and, and some are good and some are not. Yep. <laughs> and uh, some of ours, and some of ours are not. But like, uh, I think overall we, we did it just to have fun and we wanted it to be a lot different than a lot of the other fishing podcasts that were out there. And there's so many good, good ones, but like ours is not so much nuts and bolts of fishing and it's hardly about fishing news at all either. It's, it's more, we call it English happy hour because it's, it's literally uh, myself and two of my best friends. And it's the conversations that you have after you get off the lake, you talk about the eight pounder that, you know, shook and buried a hook in, in your arm, or you talk about the crazy lady that was on the dock yelling at you or the, on the, on the road trip up here, you know, the disaster that happened, uh, to your boat trailer, just, just whatever. And, uh, we get, we get guests on, um, probably about half the time. So, you know, we have guests on it to come tell stories too, but it's a lot more like just kind of stories and, and hanging out. And, and we do mix in some fishing stuff. We get people that write in and, and, and want more fishing stuff. So after a tournament, I'll break down kind of what happened and what I learned and pass the lessons along. But, um, there definitely are some episodes where we never talk about fishing at all. Like we had, uh, our last one, we had, a uh, our buddy Gunner, who is actually a really good stick over at Lake Mojave and on the Colorado river. And, uh, he gave us a tour of his, his, uh, I guess, factory that he works at. So it was pretty random, but it was pretty fun. We enjoyed it. Yeah. Yo, so I listened to that and I was listening and you guys said there was video. Is the video up somewhere? Cause it seemed like something that really would go well with video. Yeah, thank you. And uh, and this is where we fall short, dude. Okay. <laughs> we make promise to the listeners that we're going to do this, make a post of this or do a video. And we're pretty good about consistently podcasting. But yeah, the video is on my laptop um, waiting to be cut up and uh, posted onto YouTube. So it will be out. And uh, yeah, if, if you're thinking about going and listening, um, you'll know when you get to that part that would be better on video. And It'll it'll be out there eventually, and and I'll let everyone know. But it was it was pretty fun. I think people will enjoy it when uh, when they check it out. Yeah, I really had no idea what I was getting into, and I was and when I started to listen to it, and then I just couldn't I couldn't stop. Like I didn't even want to leave. I listen to podcasts when I fish a lot. I didn't even want to leave where I was fishing because I was like, I'm looking for fish. There's bass around here, and I'm also every turn is like something re- weird in this shop, like. It was it was very interesting. <laughs> well, thanks, man. I'm glad it wasn't a, a bore just on audio, but it will be better on video. It's pretty it's pretty funny. He had pre-programmed a couple of his, uh, you know, uh, fortune tellers or whatever. The business is a uh, it's it's Zoltar, the fortune telling machine. For the listeners of this show, it's this this uh, Gunner and his family um, basically created this Zoltar character. He's a fortune teller and, and they're in stores and casinos and stuff all over the country. But yeah, he had gone in and pre-programmed it to t- talk trash to uh, one of my co-hosts, Nick. So it was pretty, it was pretty perfect. Nick had no idea what was coming. So he was, <laughs> he was red, laughing when he heard it. Nice. Nice. Um, I guess on the podcast front too, like, so you, uh, I assume maybe a lot of the podcasts you listen to are about fantasy football because you've got a fair amount of driving and flying, and I know you like that a lot. Yeah, I love fantasy football. Are you a player yourself? I am not. I used to. I was like, 
I used to be super into it in college, like maybe my first, I don't know, five years out of college. And then I kind of dropped it and like, I really, I used to, there used to be times where I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to watch football this weekend. And now I just always fish. And so I've gotten more boring as I've gotten older, I guess. And, uh, but there's a, you guys had like your lot, you had a draft for, you know, like your, I guess your Bass Pro Tour league in person, right? Yeah, so we've got a, a fantasy fishing, uh, a fantasy football league uh, with a bunch of fishermen on tour here. So we had, you know, James Elam, Jordan Lee, Matt Lee, Alvin Jones Jr., Cliff Crochet, um, Gerald Spore. There's a there's a bunch of guys on tour that play in the league, and uh, yeah, it worked out perfect because we uh, we were all here for the tournament. So we actually had like a draft party, and it was pretty fun. Like all getting together, talking again. It's all about talking uh trash and like in the tournament world like and, and you see it and you're a part of it you fish a lot of tournaments like fishermen are usually pretty respectful of each other you don't get like straight trash talk um you know at a bass fishing tournament about the fishing because it's like your livelihood and you know if someone goes and has like a, a bad day on the water they're not going to come in and you'd be like dude you suck you know uh yeah but in fantasy football it's all about that so it makes it pretty fun to you know, give each other a hard time about who they, who they pick or, you know, when they have a bad game and stuff like that, it, it, it's a, it's a nice outlet. And then, yeah, you know, about like, I love, I like to listen to some fishing podcasts. I listen to you guys. I listen to BTL, especially when, you know, you guys have guests that I know, but um, sometimes you need a little break from fishing too, when it's just all you've been thinking about for, for nine months straight. So football and fantasy football is a nice break and, and the timing's perfect i mean our season winds down right as that is happening so um it's it's a it's a cool release yeah how did your teams do on week one <laughs> so yeah uh my first team uh my i've got two teams and yeah my te- my one that i really really care about is with with all these fishermen right these, these are the guys that you want to really beat so it did yep. good i one and oh, but I do have Dak Prescott who broke his hand, so I'm in quarterback trouble. I need to find myself another quarterback before next week. It, uh, I've never been a Cowboys fan, and uh, I always feel weird about drafting a Cowboys player, and it bit me again this year. So I'm, I might need to start staying away from those guys. Okay, um, who did you beat? Who are you playing? I had Cody Meyer, and uh. Cody. Is, oh yeah, dude, Cody is crazy about fantasy like to the point where he played in 2019 was his first year playing fantasy football and he loved it so much that when football season was over he literally started to play fantasy basketball and he knows nothing about basketball no one plays <laughs> basketball but cody was such a uh, uh such a crazy about it that he uh he he was doing that so he's all about it um and he was actually pre-fishing for another tournament when we yeah, had he was at the Chesapeake. <laughs> Dude, he put his boat on the trailer and drafted his team in peace. Then missed out on practice time to draft his team. To, that'll tell you a little bit about how serious he is about this. All right. Well, I think that we can clearly say then that his fantasy football has affected his bass fishing because he didn't qualify for the Elite Series. And he also only has 31 pounds through a day and a half here at 
blacks and like he must have been just distraught thinking about losing to you and that's why he's not catching him poor cody we love him to death and he's he's <laughs> he's an amazing fisherman but yeah his, he's had a rough week it, it, and i think yeah the worst part of it was losing to to me in fantasy for sure hopefully he can get back on the horse next week and you know yeah, hope, win, win him a- hopefully he bounces back um, from this and in, just in his life in general, you know? Yeah. It's been a rough week. Uh, who are you playing next week? I don't even know, actually. Yeah. I, I don't even know who I've got next week. Um, and, and this tournament has had me semi distracted. Yeah. You've had yeah, probably the blinders on pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, trust me, it, the minute, you know, we were all off the water yesterday, it was Monday night football and, uh, and we watched the game for sure. So uh, it, it, it is fun, man. I, I really enjoy doing it. And, you know, yeah, it, it, I know you are like the king of fantasy fishing and a lot of the principles kind of go across, uh, across both sides, but it's, it's just, it's fun. My wife rolls her eyes every time fantasy football comes up and, and it comes up a lot. I am very, I have like some really high points with fantasy fishing. I have a lot of low points. Um, <laughs> how do you play fantasy fishing though? Or do you just do the picks? Because I know you do the picks. Yeah, I help. Uh, you know, I do. I do like an article every week with uh, Mason from MLS or every tournament, and help with uh, you know help other people make picks. But I don't play. Um, I guess there's really nothing. Saying I know, like, um, it's not like gambling. So I guess I technically I could. You know. Uh, do you know any other fishermen that do play? Uh, I know Matt Stefan does. I think Jimmy Reese does. Um, but I don't really know for sure. I know some guys who used to like AJ Slagona. I don't know if he played when he fished, but now that he's off the, you know, the pro circuit, he plays like avidly. Like he is, he was as locked in as anyone else, uh, you know, for the Chesapeake and the St. Lawrence. And like we were, you know, comparing notes prior to it. So I uh, I don't I, I think that you could probably do pretty good because at the end of practice you could be like, man, I found a lot of fish there and I saw Cody right there too, so maybe I should put him yeah, on the squad. So that'd be uh, yeah, I don't know, I don't know what people would say about that if you ended up winning a good prize or something, but um, I'd love to play. It'd be pretty fun. You should uh, you should do it. You could even just play like, you know. You're not at an elite series event. You could play those, or you know, if we there have fantasy go. for the invitationals, you could play those. You know, <laughs> like if you didn't want to cross the streams too much. But that's that's that's, a, that's actually a really good call. You know, I know yeah. Austin Eckler um, for the Chargers. He plays fantasy quite a bit, and he's like he's actually one of the top few fantasy running backs in uh, in the league. And he uh, he's a part of a pretty uh, popular league that I I listen to a lot on uh, on fantasy football radio. So. Okay. I would have to give it a shot. He doesn't play fantasy fishing, though, does he? No. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, that'd be like, pretty wild. I, I didn't... I, I guess I don't have... I don't suspect there are many, if any, NFL players that play uh, fantasy fishing, but... I yeah, know. I, said, I know there's... Play... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I know there's like a lot of pro athletes that... Well, maybe not a lot, but there's definitely some that play a lot of fantasy. For sure. They're, they're competitive people, right? So uh, any chance to compete and talk trash, I think they're going to take advantage of it. Yeah, no no doubt. Oh. 
Anyway, man, I think we're going to call it because the last at least 10 minutes, I assume everyone threw their phones away because they probably they probably don't want to hear about like somebody else's fantasy team anyway, but that's why I saved it for the end. Um, Thank you. But uh, where can folks find you? Where can folks uh, get you know their fill of Josh Bertrand? And uh, then I think we'll call it a day. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, it was a blast talking to you, man. Um, you can uh, find me uh, just on the usual stuff, Facebook and Instagram, at Josh Bertrand Fishing. Uh, the podcast is Angler's Happy Hour. Hopefully Jody will be on that soon with us. And um, my YouTube is Josh Bertrand Fishing as well, and uh, it's just getting started. I've put about 10 videos out. But, um, yeah, if you want to see some what fishing looks like out in Arizona, I've got uh, a flipping video where I – I catch an eight pounder and six pounder flip in. I've got that Garmin live scope video where you can see what that new transducer looks like. Um, just a couple of basic things like that. Cool. I'm definitely going to have to check out some of the Arizona ones. Cause that's one of my favorite things about your podcast is like so much of the stuff you talk about is like kind of foreign and exciting to me. Whereas, I mean, I love talking about smallmouth, but also, I don't know, like I got a lot of them nearby. So that's, that's cool. uh, that'll be well, fun. Dude, You've got an open invite if you ever want to get out of the cold north in the wintertime, man, and check out what our lakes have to offer. You can come stay with me and fish with me anytime. Well, I definitely may take you up on that. Um, and, uh, man, thanks for coming on the show, and good luck these next couple days. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me.